Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a few things that instantly spring to mind when you think of London. Black cabs, Big Ben, and red buses, to name a few. But one of the most recognisable symbols is the London Underground Roundel. This transport network, which was constructed in the Victorian times and originally used steam trains, is still so efficient that when we're not in a pandemic, five million journeys are made every single day upon it. The second busiest of all the 11 lines, unsurprisingly, happens to be the one that runs right through the heart of the city. This line is the longest on the whole of the network, clocking in at a whopping 46 miles long, serving 49 stations. Hosting a multitude of commuters, from tourists to city boys, and everyone in between without a hitch is no mean feat. And for the most part, these journeys unfold benignly. However, when the rush hour dies down and the passengers have all but gone, you may just hear the stations whispering forth their hidden secrets. Today on Macabre London, we uncover the secrets of the Central Line. Central Line is arguably the most recognisable branch of the London Underground Network. The busiest of all Transport for London's 11 lines, its classic London Red, which paints its pathways on the tube map, is undeniably a favourite with tourists and commuters alike, due to it being fast and getting you across the city in a matter of minutes. The third of the tube lines to be built, following on from the success of the forerunners, the City and South London Railway and the Waterloo and City Line, the former, which progressed to be the Northern Line, and the latter, which still bears the same name. 
Building began in 1896, with the aim to make the city a little better connected, and to help Londoners easily traverse further, and to also make other transport connections easier, like joining the newfangled but now defunct tramlines. Due to the line being one of the first of its kind, there was quite the opposition to it being built, with people worrying that it would cause disruption to buildings above ground. In fact, at one point the whole project was nearly abandoned due to the concerns that St Paul's may topple if the tunnels were not built correctly and undermined the foundations beneath. To get around these difficult planning restrictions and concerns for subsidence, the line instead was built to mirror many of the streets above, avoiding the larger buildings. This can be seen particularly at Bank Station, where the platform curves around to accommodate such buildings, this is quite a juxtaposition to the rest of the network's parallel straight platforms, and can be quite discombobulating when the doors open and you're met with quite a large gap between the train and the platform. In fact, the iconic Mind the gap. announcements were developed in 1968 to combat these exact problems at stations such as Bank, which is arguably the most curved on the whole of the network. Once the line was opened, it would go through a few changes of trains and carriages, but it was the first line to be quite plush with its interiors, setting the bar for subsequent services to come. It had wooden interiors, but equally it had soft furnishings, and the design had seemingly thought about its passenger distribution. The line was the first to have steadying handrails for passengers, and also drop-down straps that people could hold onto to avoid having to work on their core strength any time they got onto a train. As an aside, the next time you're on a not-very-busy tube and you fancy a challenge, try standing upright without holding onto the handrails whilst the train is moving. It's quite the ab workout. The central line also enticed new customers from the street to the subterranean by offering a standardised fare, the first of its kind for the network. Before the invention of the travel card in 1983 and the amalgamation of the network in the 1930s, tube tickets were charged individually, as they were mainly owned by different companies, so a standardised fare across the network, which was affordable, was much more likely to draw customers, and that it did. The line was a glowing success, and it paved the way for other lines to expand and flourish. This also allowed the line to keep adding stations to its roster until it grew into the 46-mile-long behemoth it is today. However, as interesting as all that might be, I know why you're really here, and it's not for history lessons on trains now, is it? So let's head into that unlit siding and see what lurks in the darkness. If you've ever been waiting alone on a tube platform at night when the hustle and bustle has died down, then you may feel like you're being watched. And that's because you are. The tube stations themselves have a lot of CCTV, and I mean a lot of CCTV. In just Bank Station, there's a whopping 182 cameras watching your every move, and up and down the whole line there's an estimated 12,000 cameras watching you at any time. With such a fastidious commitment to your surveillance when on their property, you think the process would work both ways, with you being protected once on board a train. However, the eyes you may feel watching you once you're on board are not those of TfL, but may be the opportunists who deliberately choose the central line to commit crimes upon it, with everything from pickpocketing through to the more serious sexual assault. Due to the increased risk on this line, it's being fast-tracked for CCTV, 
But having said that, the proposed date it will be finally finished is 2024. The reason being that the old style of trains on this line, which desperately need replacing due to their low electricity levels and low lighting, which doesn't fit the CCTV requirements, were overlooked for upgrade by the previous Mayor of London and now current Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He decided this wasn't a priority despite being told about the crime on the network, and as such decided not to do anything about it. However, the current Mayor, Sadiq Khan, has had to implement this from scratch, which is why it's so heavily delayed. So if you ever find yourself alone in a carriage with a shifty looking character, you may wish to swap to a more packed one at the next stop, and also blame your Prime Minister for not protecting you. The beady eyes you feel staring at you are also not limited to people, but some smaller residents of the line, mice. Unlike the larger rat, which prefers the miles of London's dank and dark sewers, which is much more in keeping with their riverbank dwellings in the wild, mice prefer the warm and dry comfort of the London underground, which replicates the dry barns and hollow trees they would find in the wild. These tiny creatures populate a vast amount of the network, and spotting them is a fairly common occurrence. They like to stick to the ends of the platform so they can dip away under the barriers the humans can't pass, but remain close enough to the benches, which many people sit and have their lunch on, or their post-pub kebab. Now, if you're a musophobe and terrified of these wee furry beasts, you may want to skip forward about 30 seconds, because I'm just about to reveal how many mice currently inhabit the London Underground. A whopping half a million mice live in stations across the network, and if you're ever looking for a free zoo where the only animal they have is mice, just head to the tube. There's tons of them. Mice aren't the only animal that has been known to use the tube. Pigeons, foxes, and even squirrels have been known to take a seat and travel on to other stations, seemingly using the network just like any other human commuter would. However, all of these unsettling occurrences can at least be explained, but what happens when the feeling of unease has no possible source? Staff working at Bethnal Green Station have in the past reported some rather disturbing activity coming from the deserted platforms. One night, when on duty, a worker was cleaning the ticket hall when he heard the sound of crying drifting up from the platform. Not a particularly unusual occurrence, the occasional crying person is seen on the tube. After all, where there's people, there's bound to be someone upset for one reason or another, and it's just a fact of working in a big city. He ignored the sound and continued cleaning, but decided to take a leisurely stroll just to check out what was going on, and to see if the person was okay. As he drew closer to the platform, he realised that the sound of crying had now turned into a heavy sob, and he suddenly realised this wasn't an adult crying. It was the sound of two children. Thinking the pair had been separated from their parents, which sometimes happens when an all-too-eager guardian decides to take a gamble on a train that's just about to leave and loses, leaving their little darlings abandoned, he figured he would go and wait with them until their disgraced family member returned on the next train. The noise of sobbing intensified as he reached the platform, and as he stepped onto it, he looked up and down the platform looking for the children. However, he realised he was alone. He checked both ends of the platforms under the benches, but still nothing. As he walked back into the mezzanine towards the escalators, terrible sounds flooded his ears. This time it was screaming, crying, the sounds of a panicked mob coming from the ticket hall. 
Terrified, he ran back up the escalators, thinking that an almighty scene would await him when he reached the top, but again he found he was alone. Retreating into the safety of the staff room, he was plagued by the screaming, crying and sobbing, which permeated the building for 15 minutes before it ceased entirely. Even though this paranormal story sounds far-fetched, Bethnal Green Station does hold a horrendous secret, which may just explain the occurrence that night. Back in World War II, many of London's tube stations were used as air raid shelters. The deep-level platforms were an ideal place for hundreds of Londoners to sleep, as they afforded protection from the air raids which devastated the city above. People would be packed in tightly along the platform, and owing to the train stopping at night, some would even sleep on the tracks. These pop-up hostels were for those who didn't have gardens which had air raid shelters built in, and as most Londoners weren't afforded the luxury of an outdoor space, the underground had to do. The station shelters proved so popular for Londoners that they were often pushed to their maximum capacity, and as such, people were turned away, leaving them to fend for themselves outside whilst bombs were dropping, and not all of them survived. Demand for the tube stations was so high that ten other low-level shelters were hastily built. Two were planned for the central line, but only one at Chancery Lane ended up being constructed. The other one, which was due to be built under St Paul's, was abandoned, again in fears that it might topple the building due to subsidence. The shelters unfortunately ended up being too late for those who had to gamble on getting into a crowded station, as they were finished in 1942. The Blitz ended in 1941. Despite the Blitz ending in 1941 and a brief respite in 1942, the war didn't end until 1945, and bombs were still dropped upon London up until 1944. On the night of March the 3rd, 1943, at around 8.15pm, the sirens blasted out and people stopped whatever they were doing, grabbing their overnight bags for yet another night spent down underground. The residents of Bethnal Green began heading down to their local tube station, but on this evening, something was different. As the 7,000 residents patiently queued to enter, funneling their way onto the escalators and down onto the platform, an unusual noise was heard which panicked the crowd. The noises caused people to suddenly panic, as they thought the usual grace period they were afforded before bombs started dropping had been cut short and that they were suddenly in danger. People bolted, pushing their way into the station. This began a ripple effect further up in the crowd, and people began to topple down the stairs, falling like dominoes, those at the bottom of the steps being crushed by a waterfall of people from above. With so many people crammed into the tight space, people couldn't move, and those crushed under the weight of others were asphyxiated. The crush was completely merciless. Women carrying children fell forward, the weight of their own bodies adding to the crush. Old people toppled down flights of stairs in the poor light and without handrails to grab onto, and despite efforts to move people, those that had already died from the fall added weight to the pile, which meant others who were still alive couldn't escape. Dr Joan Martin, who had recently qualified, received a call to the children's hospital she was working at nearby, saying she was to expect 30 fainted children within the next hour. Here's Joan talking about that fateful night, speaking to Eddie Mayer in an interview for the BBC. On the night in question, 
What's your earliest memory that something big was happening? A message came through from some central office, as I say, to that we were to expect 30 faints from a tube shelter. And I had at the time working with me in the daytime two men, students from the London Hospital. I said to the men, this is a put-up job just to see how quickly we can do it. Just and an exercise. Yes, an exercise. We hardly finished before, as I say, one wet, mauve body was brought in on a stretcher. The body was wet because apparently when they pulled them out from the shelter, they put them on the pavement and threw water on them to try and revive them. But, I mean, they were dead, obviously, from the beginning. And give the men the stretches back because they... The ambulance men seemed particularly agitated and it, it didn't dawn me on me until afterwards, of course, that they were so upset because their women and children were down in the shelter. With the final death toll reaching 173 people and 60 injuries, London was looking for answers, but all it found was silence. Again, let's hear from Dr Joan. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. People th- thought that there was a problem with the bombs coming down. Suddenly, there was the anti-aircraft guns in the park nearby had changed and they had become rockets and the rockets going up sounded like bombs coming down so the people locally living picked up their bedding and their children and ran to the shelter and the shelter lights as far as one can gather the the door was hardly open I gather it was just a wooden door and the, the staff were not on duty and Uh, the whole place was dark and they crowded into the building and there were concrete steps and ultimately somebody fell. They were said to be carrying a child. There were two doors and they felt so that one door closed. So in the end, there was only one door open and this mass of people coming from the street, 
just crowded onto the stairs and they couldn't go back, although the, the way ahead was blocked, they couldn't get back again. In addition to this, there were several buses that stopped and by this time the air raid siren I know had gone and so the people from the buses tried to get down the shelter as well. And I I wasn't aware of that at all at the time. I've just heard that since. As far as I was concerned, the bodies continued to arrive until about 11 o'clock that night. This must have been going on for about three hours. Uh, And as I say, the the tragedy, as far as I was concerned, was, you see, that very many of them were women, women and children. So in the end, I, having been qualified for one year was more or less in charge of this simply hopeless situation. How did it affect you afterwards? Well, I still have nightmares, and always in my nightmares people are being trampled to death. You were not allowed to say anything about what happened? Yes. My reaction was to walk from Bethnal Green to Hammersmith, where my mentor lived. That's a long walk. And I got there about tea time. She listened to my story, but I was able to tell her what had happened. And she listened and, and she heard and she she said, they told you not to tell anybody else. Well, I agree with that. Don't, don't dare tell anybody else. Why not? Uh, because I think they didn't want to create alarm and despondency. They were afraid that uh, it looked as though things were out of hand, I should imagine. So the only person that I told for all those years, was my mentor, Ursula Shelley. But obviously, if something like that were to happen now, it would be... Well, I mean, I would have gone to the press straight away. (laughs) You'd have sold your story. (laughs) Nothing would have silenced me as I know about it now. A huge oversight on the part of those in charge of military operations on that night. Many civilians were senselessly killed in the tragic accident, and their relatives were denied the justice they deserved. Only in 2017, 74 years after the accident, the victims finally received a memorial large enough to commemorate the largest single loss of civilian life during the Second World War. Before this, only a small plaque upon the wall of the tube station was the only nod to the disaster. Aptly titled Stairway to Heaven, the upside-down staircase bears the names of those who lost their lives during the crush. Now, I must say, I'm always loath to reduce such tragic events down to hauntings and ghost sightings, as it does cheapen people's deaths. But I do wonder if places retain energy memories when traumatic events have occurred inside them. Or perhaps the reason we experience these phenomena is due to an untapped sense. Maybe we're able to access this sense which warns us of a past trauma experienced in a certain area. Much like horses spook and dogs snarl at things we're unable to see, Perhaps there is something in the ether, faded portion of the fear that was encountered. When we refer to our gut instinct, perhaps this is more scientific than we think. Something we may not discover definitely for a fair few years, or perhaps ever, but which may account for paranormal phenomena. If this is the case, then that might explain some of the other ghost sightings that have been experienced at a few stations upon the Central Line. When initial excavations were carried out to make the London Underground Network as a whole, many ancient burial sites, which had been lost to time on the surface, became uncovered. These included, amongst others, a multitude of plague pits. 
As bones were removed and reburied elsewhere, it was only a matter of time before some long slumbering souls were bound to be disturbed. Liverpool Street is home to ghost sightings aplenty, with reports of a malevolent feeling encountered on its central line-based platform. However, that could just be the dread of going to work or entering the inexplicably hot station here. Ghostly men in overalls have also appeared and subsequently disappeared when asked to get on with their job. Definitely sounds like that might not have been a ghost, actually, now I think about it. Perhaps the most interesting of all the ghost stories is down to a ghost station. The combination of the artefacts hidden within the British Museum and the lore surrounding many of these precious items, combined with an unsettling underground station, was too much for people in the 1930s, and rumours started to spread about its paranormal activity. Said to be linked by a tunnel to the Egyptian room in the British Museum itself, British Museum Station was once a stop on the central line. Due to its position as it was only a few hundred feet away from Hoban Station, this station was closed in 1935. However, the stories surrounding its reason for doing so are quite extraordinary. Legend has it that the station had begun to suffer from voices being heard in the tunnels. These weren't just any old run-of-the-mill English voices, but people whispering in Egyptian. How the not-well-travelled English people would have been able to pinpoint these whispers as Egyptian is beyond me, but here we are. Anyway, the platform was said to have been home to the spirit of an ancient Egyptian god, Amun-Ra, who used the tunnel linking the museum and the station as his lair. People reportedly saw an apparition of a man in a headdress and a loincloth roaming the platform, and the stories soon got out of control. The station closing also coincided with a film being released that was very loosely based on the ghost story, and which used an abandoned tube station for the bad guy jewel thieves to hide inside, and starred popular film stars of the day, Jack Holbert and Faye Ray, she of King Kong fame, and went by the title Bulldog Jack. The abandoned station was also reimagined in the 1972 underrated and much-forgotten film Deathline, when a killer uses the abandoned station to store his victims, using the interconnecting tunnel to move the bodies around. The height of the haunted station perhaps peaked when people began to panic that Amun-Ra had relocated to the still-open Holborn station, when two women went missing after waiting for a train one night. Marks were seemingly found in the tunnels which led back toward the British Museum station, and the two women were never found. This led to challenges for people to spend the night alone in the station by a newspaper which would give anyone brave enough a cash reward for returning to the surface. Now, unfortunately, I have to sadly ruin all the fun here, as despite this story having been touted in many modern newspapers, I've yet to find any newspaper reports of the missing women or of the challenge set by the newspaper in 1935. And there's nothing in the British newspaper archives, so we'll just have to assume that this folklore has grown over the years. But if you know of the whereabouts of either of those pieces of information, I'd love to see them, so do please let me know. The last ghost is perhaps the scariest of all on the Tube network, but also the saddest, and that's the Black Nun of Bank Station. Said to lurk in the tunnels, scaring train drivers and commuters alike, she roams in the dark, searching for her long-lost brother. To discover why her brother is lost, though, we need to go directly above ground to the Bank of England. 
Sarah Whitehead's brother, Philip, worked for the Bank of England for 13 years, and after his lifestyle was becoming seemingly more extravagant year on year, suspicions started to be placed upon him, and questions started to be asked about where he was obtaining his money from. He resigned from the bank before he was fired, and subsequently he was found to have defrauded a company under his care by forging a cheque in their name. This was the only crime he was found guilty of, but it was presumed there were many more offences of forgery he'd gotten away with. Philip was hanged in 1813, and as a result of the trauma she endured, his sister Sarah refused to believe he was dead. She would visit the bank every day, asking to see Philip, and was always politely removed. After Philip's execution, Sarah wore mourning clothes, draped in black crinolines and crepe, which gave her the title of the Black Nun. As a result, she is said to haunt the station and the surrounding streets above, always looking for Philip. No matter how you feel about the London Underground, you cannot deny it holds some of the most interesting history the city has to offer. From quirky facts through to gruesome deaths, this transport system has seen its fair share of strange and macabre occurrences. The heartbeat of the city, with its network of veins running underneath the surface, is what keeps London alive, and despite it changing, evolving and growing, the history it's collated over the years can't be lost. So next time you're sat on a packed train, which may still be a little while away, think of the millions of others that have done so before you, and the few that may have departed this earth, but remain bound to the underground. And as always, please... Mind the gap. Thank you so much for joining me today as we take a trip back in time on the tube. If you've been a long time listener to the podcast, then you may remember that I did an episode about the Northern Line way back in 2017, which was part one of this series. So if you want more like this, then please go ahead to that podcast episode if you haven't listened to it already. I'll pop a link to it in the description box and the show notes too. Also, I found both the films are mentioned in this episode online too, so the links are in the sources box if you want to check those both out, and I recommend that you do, because they are actually quite good. As always, please fire off in the comments if you have any stories to do with this topic. I love hearing people's tube rage stories, so do please share. I think the worst two stories have to be one time a man got off the tube in front of me and instantly threw up, so I had to dodge the splashback on the platform, and another was a guy who kept turning his newspaper as an excuse to touch my bum. Which was fine, because I used the same law of physics when getting off the train when my rather large handbag happened to hit him in the face. A huge thanks if you've sent through a one-off donation or signed up to my Patreon recently. It's so hugely appreciated and means the world. And there's been quite a few of you recently, so thank you very, very much for doing that. As usual, a huge thanks to our executive Patreon producers, Barry, Sam, Sarah and Veronica, and all our other patrons too. If you'd like to support the show like the legends I've just mentioned, and also have your name read out at the end of the show, then check out the description box. There is also going to be another episode of Weird Things I Found in Old Newspapers going up in the next few days on Patreon, so if you're interested in getting some more weird history for just $1 a month, then do please check it out. Thank you for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, and I'll see you ghouls next time. Oh, I got my nails back. I got my nails back.